0: Fathe Islam, Victory of Islam, by Hajrat Mirza Hulam Ahmad, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, 1996, Islam International Publications, Limited, printed by Rakim Press, Tilford, Surrey, UK. Publishers note. Fathe Islam was written in Urdu by Hajrat Mirza Hulam Ahmad, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community in 1890, and was first published in early 1891. Fathe Islam, the victory of Islam, was first translated into English by the late Qazi Muhammad Aslam and Mr. Nur-ud-Din Munir in 1973. This translation by Mr. Mubarak Amar Nazir is a complete revision. An attempt has been made to meticulously stick to the text as far as possible. The translation may appear cumbersome to the Western reader, but that is mainly due to the difficulty of the task at hand and the difference in the genealogy of the two languages. In case of any doubt or apparent conflict that may arise out of this translation, it is the Urdu original that has to be referred to. We would like to thank Mr. Mubarak Ahmad Nazir for providing us with this invaluable rendering. Signed, The Publishers, June 1996. Announcement. 700 copies of this book, Fathe Islam, The Victory of Islam, have been published. Out of this number, 300 have been reserved for free distribution among Muslim theologians and those of meager means but fond of such literature, Christian and Hindu intellectuals. The remaining 400 will be sold to those who can afford at the rate of eight annas per copy. Postage and tariff will be extra. Those entitled to free copies like the clergymen, scholars, and those of meager means can write to us enclosing a half anna postage stamp, and the book will be dispatched to them. Signed by a humble servant, Mirza Guham Ahmad of Kadian. Beneath his photograph we have these words. Born in 1835 in Kadian, India, Hazrat Mirza Hulam Ahmad remained dedicated to the study of the Holy Koran and to a life of prayer and devotion. Finding Islam the target of foul attacks from all directions, the fortunes of Muslims at a low ebb, faith yielding to doubt and religion only skin deep, He undertook a vindication and exposition of Islam, first in his epoch-making Brahen e Ahmadiyya, spread over four volumes. Islam, he said, was a living faith, by following which man could establish contact with his Creator and enter into communion with Him. The teachings contained in the Holy Koran and the law promulgated by Islam were designed to raise man to moral, intellectual, and spiritual perfection. He announced that God had appointed him the Messiah, as mentioned in the prophecies of the Bible and the Holy Koran. In 1889, he began to accept initiation into his community, which is now established in 137 countries and mosques all over the world. His 80 books were written mostly in Urdu, but some were in Arabic and Persian. This book, Fathe Islam, Victory of Islam, was written in Urdu language with a poem in Persian containing thirty-eight couplets. Fathe Islam was published in 1891. After his death in 1908, he was succeeded by his first successor, Hajrat Maulvi Nuruddin Khalifatul Khalifatul Mas. Number One. On the death of Hadrat Malvi nur ud in 1914, he was succeeded by his second Khalifa, Hadrat Mirza Bashiruddin Amahmoud Ahmad, who was also his promised son. Hadrat Mirza Bashiruddin Amahmoud Ahmad remained the Khalifa for 52 years. He died in 1965 and was succeeded by Hadrat Mirza Nasir Ahmad, a grandson of the founder. After 17 years of meritorious services, he passed away in 1982. He was succeeded as Khalifa Tul the IV by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may God assist him, who also has the distinction of being the grandson of the founder. In 1984, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad was constrained to take up temporary residence in London, UK. Since his blessed tenure of office... The community has made tremendous progress in all fields, the celebration of the first centenary of the founding of the community in 1989, the publication of the Holy Koran in over 50 major languages of the world, widespread initiation of masses into the community, and the live satellite transmission of his Friday sermons and other programs to all the continents of the world are some of the salient achievements. In the name of God, the Most Gracious, the Most Merciful, we praise only Him and invoke only His blessings. The victory of Islam and glad tidings of a distinctive manifestation of God, an invitation leading toward the paths of His obedience and the attaining of His support. My Lord, infuse the blessings of Thy Spirit into my writing and incline the hearts of humanity toward it. Readers, may God protect you in this world and in the hereafter. After a long pause, this humble servant invites your attention toward this important essay on a divine commission to which God has appointed me for the promotion of the faith of Islam. In this article, with such power of communication as bestowed upon me by God, I wish to proclaim the splendor of this divine commission and the need for its support. This is to absolve myself in respect to my obligations to do justice to the work of propagation entrusted to me. Therefore, in addressing you, I am the least concerned as to how the contents of this article will influence your minds. All that I am concerned with is my duty, the duty to deliver this message, which I owe to you as one owes a debt which must be settled." It matters not whether this message is welcomed or scorned with abhorrence and distrust, or whether readers have faith in my good intentions. And I entrust my affair to God, verily God watches over his servants. Surah al-Mumim, chapter 40, verse 45. Now I turn to the subject in question. O ye seekers of truth, and O ye who faithfully love Islam, it is evident to you that we are passing through a very dark phase of history. A severe corruption has seeped into man's faith as well as in his deeds. A swift storm of deviation and heresy blows from all directions. What is called faith has been substituted by a few words of declaration uttered by the tongue, and what are called righteous deeds have been assumed to be a few rites, r-i-t-e, extravagant, practices, or hypocritical activities. True piety and virtue have been completely forgotten. The philosopher, as well as the naturalist of this age, fiercely denounce spiritual capacities. Their views cast an evil influence on their acquaintances and result in dragging them towards spiritual darkness. They stimulate evil impulses and awaken the dormant Satan, Those who become engrossed in such thoughts lose their religious convictions, so much so that they begin to look with contempt and ridicule on the prescribed fundamental divine injunctions, like the manner of fasting and the offering of prayers. Their hearts are totally void of the respect for the existence and greatness of God. On the contrary, a majority of them are trained in atheism and agnosticism, Despite being born of Muslim parents, they are hostile to religion. Often it so happens that even before they are relieved of their studies, they are relieved of their faith and sympathy for their faith, and are resigned to it. This is the mention of just one offshoot in our time that is laden with the fruits of misguidance. In addition to this, there are hundreds of other offshoots which are no less obnoxious. It is frequently observed that the traits of trust and honesty have, it would seem, totally disappeared from the earth. In the pursuit of worldly ends, cheating and deception have exceeded all limits. The most mischievous is regarded as the most competent. Many types of lies, dishonesty, indulgence in false measures, fraud, falsehood, schemes full of greed and meanness continue to spread far and wide. Disputes based upon cruelty and malice are in ascendancy. A fierce storm of the incitement of animal passions and violence is raging. The more proficient people become in the currently popular fields of knowledge and modern systems of legislation, the less mindful they are in respect of their responsibilities in the field of decent behavior, virtuousness, instinctive qualities of good character, modesty, fear of God, and the impulse of fair dealings. The Christian Church is also laying a variety of landmines to blow up truth and faith. It is taking measures to instruct people to undermine and sabotage the good cause of faith. They are conspiring to annihilate Islam by means of subtle artifacts of falsehood and deception. They employ these measures to rob Islam of its beauty in all areas of its teachings. They innovate various measures to deceive and mislead people with every guile that they can conceive. They are thus insulting and defaming that perfect man who was the pride of all holy men, the crown of saints, and the chief of all apostles. They do not hesitate even to caricature the religion of Islam and its sacred guide in satirical stage shows. They parade in comical processions, trying to project a most hateful image of Islam. A vicious slander is circulated through theaters with the aim of destroying the reputation of Islam and its holy founder. Therefore, O Muslims, listen and heed to what I say. Christian nations have devised elaborate fabrications and let loose a complex campaign against the divine influence of Islam. It is pursued with such desperation that the funds involved are spent in torrents. It would be better to keep this article free of the mention of the disgraceful plots expended in the pursuit of this scheme. Such are the enchanting intrigues of the Christian nations and the followers of Trinity. If God did not frustrate their efforts with a powerful sweep of his hand and thereby shatter the web of their enchantment, It would be inconceivable to save the innocent, credulous people from their crafty designs. Therefore, in order to annihilate this wizardry, God granted the sincere Muslims of this age a miracle by sending this humble servant. He exalted me with his revelation, his word, and his choicest blessings. He bestowed me with the delicate subtleties of how to tread his path in order to successfully confront all opposition to Islam. He amply provided me with numerous heavenly gifts, transcendent signs and spiritual insights to their religious trends and inclinations so that this waxen idol of Western intrigue be smashed with this heavenly rock. So, O Muslims, the manifestation of this humble servant is indeed a miracle of God TO REMOVE DARK SPELLS CAST BY THE MAGIC OF THIS WESTERN SORCERY? WAS IT NOT IMPERATIVE THAT, AS A COUNTER TO THIS WIZARDRY, THE WORLD SHOULD BE GRANTED A DIVINE MIRACLE? DOES IT SOUND ODD AND INCREDIBLE IN YOUR EYES THAT TO CONFRONT AND DEFEAT THESE TERRIBLE INTRIGUES WHICH HAVE ACQUIRED MAGICAL DIMENSIONS, GOD SHOULD MANIFEST SUCH A DAZZLING LIGHT WHICH WOULD HAVE A MIRACULOUS EFFECT? O WISE PEOPLE! Do not be astonished that at the appropriate moment when the world was engulfed in intense darkness, God sent down a heavenly light. This light was personified in the shape of a humble person, and for the appropriateness of this purpose, he chose this person to bolster the Islamic creed. He appointed this humble self for the propagation of the light of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and as a support for the Muslims. Indeed, he sent him to this world for the purpose of the internal reformation of the Muslims. You were more justified to be surprised if God, who is the defender of the religion of Islam, who has given his word that he will always preserve the teachings of the Quran, were to remain mute at this critical juncture. It would have been a cause of utter surprise if God, who promised never to allow this religion of Islam to lose its luster and freshness, who, even after casting a glance at the overt and covert deterioration of the Muslims, were to remain silent. It would have been shocking if he had failed to honor those firm promises made in his holy book, the Holy Koran. I again repeat that if there was any cause for wonderment, it would have been, if the unequivocal prophecy of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, which stated that God would continue to raise at the beginning of every century a reformer for the rejuvenation of his faith, went unfulfilled. Lengthy footnote as follows. To publish translations of the Holy Koran merely as a formality and custom, or to compile and popularize the Urdu or Persian translations of religious books and books of Hadith or to impart lifeless teachings impregnated with innovations, as has been the custom of the majority of scholars of this age, cannot be termed as the real and complete rejuvenation of faith. The fact is that giving currency to innovations are the machinations of Satan and traitorous to faith. To publish and circulate the Holy Koran and the authentic traditions a hadith of the Holy Prophet is no doubt laudable. But doing this as a mere formality without imposing those teachings upon oneself are just listless and outward services which can and continue to be rendered by a variety of intellectual scholars. Such services have no relationship with the task of a reviver of faith, mujaddid. In the sight of God, they are the trading of dead and dry skeletons and nothing else. God states in the Holy Koran, Why do you say that what you do, not do? It is the most hateful in the sight of God that you say what you do, not do. Surah al-Saf, chapter 61, verses 3 and 4. Again, God says, O ye who believe, take care of your own selves. He who goes astray cannot harm you when you yourselves are rightly guided. Surah al-Ma'idah, chapter 5, verse 106. To which path will a blind guide another blind? How will a leper cure the leprosy of others? Tajdid edin is that passion for the reformation of faith which descends upon such a heart that forges a state of communion with God. Then, sooner or later, this yearning of communion seeps into others, Those who are gifted with the status of a reformer do not just trade in lifeless bones. Rather, they become the deputies of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and indeed his spiritual successors, khalifa. They inherit all the blessings that are granted to prophets and apostles. Their speech is effortless and spontaneous, emanating from the inner core of the heart. Their speech is supplemented with noble deeds and personal experiences and is not the mere expression of theoretical knowledge. The revelation of God illumines their hearts. In all times of distress, they receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. Their speech and conduct is not influenced by any worldly concern because they have been wholly purified and drawn toward God. End of footnote number one. MAIN TEXT Therefore, this is not an occasion for amazement or surprise. Rather, it is a time for the offering of countless thanks to God. It is a time for the strengthening and fortification of faith. Indeed, God fulfilled his promise and did not allow even the lapse of a single moment in fulfilling the prophecy of his prophet. Not only has he fulfilled this prophecy but he has also opened the door for the fulfillment of thousands of other prophecies and out-of-the-ordinary occurrences. If you are true believers, you should rejoice and offer prostrations of gratitude. Your forefathers passed away while waiting for this blessed hour. Countless generations of posterity went by longing to see this time which you have seen. Whether you value this blessed hour or not, Whether you benefit from this time or not is entirely left to your discretion. I will continue to stress this point repeatedly and cannot abstain from emphasizing that I am that very person who has been sent at the right time for the reformation of humankind. I am sent so that faith should be re-established in the hearts of men. I have been sent on the same pattern as my prototype, Jesus Christ was sent after the blessed Chalei Mulach, Prophet Moses. Jesus Christ had to endure many hardships during the reign of King Herod. After much suffering, his soul was raised to the heavens. The second Chalei Mullah, the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who in reality is the first and foremost, the chief of all prophets, the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was sent to annihilate the other Pharaohs of his time. It is in this context that God said, Surely we have sent to you a messenger who is a witness over you, just as we sent a messenger to Pharaoh. Surah al-Muzamil, chapter 73, verse 16. So he who by virtue of his works was entitled Kalem, like unto the previous Kalem, Prophet Moses, yet was higher in rank, was also bestowed the promise of a new Messiah like unto the previous one, Jesus Christ. That promised Messiah appeared in the power, temperament, and character analogous to that of Jesus, son of Mary. He came at a similar period. The time period that separated the first Kalim, Moses, from the first Messiah, Jesus Christ, that is, fourteen centuries, was approximately equal to the time between the second Kalim, the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, and the descent from the heavens of the second Messiah. Hence, that descent was spiritual in nature, like the descent of all the perfected people, who, having ascended spiritually, descend again for the reformation of Allah's creatures. The second Messiah, therefore, descended at a time which resembles, in all essentials, the time of the first Messiah, that is, Jesus, son of Mary, so that it may serve as a sign for those who comprehend. Lengthy footnote number two, as follows. This age through which we are passing is one of indifference to the inner soul and truth. There is deprivation of honesty, integrity, and moral excellence. Greed, stinginess, and materialism are so rampant that this age resembles the decadent age of Jews at the time of the appearance of Jesus, son of Mary. The Jews of that time became totally alienated toward genuine rectitude. They considered as sufficient a few rituals and customs. Honesty, integrity, inner cleanliness, and the sense of fairness had completely vanished. There was no mark of genuine sympathy and tenderness left upon them. Different types of human worship had replaced the worship of the true God. All these dreadful ailments have again surfaced in our age. Lawful things are not accepted and consumed with the gratitude and humility which they merit. Things that are unlawful are not avoided with the nausea and disgust they deserve. Important ordinances of God are put aside by flimsy excuses. Most of our religious scholars are in no way less than the scribes and Pharisees of that time. They would swallow a camel but filter at a gnat. They shut the kingdom of God upon everyone, neither entering into it nor allowing others to enter. They spend long hours over the daily prayers, but their hearts are barren of the true love and majesty of God. They sit on the pulpit and deliver such inspiring sermons which move the congregation to tears, but their deeds run completely at variance. It is amazing that while their hearts are rebellious and their intentions mischievous, yet their eyes are very skillful at weeping. How strange are their tongues that, while their hearts remain insensitive, their tongues continue to harp feelings of tenderness. Such Jewish traits of character can be observed all over. The qualities of righteousness and sympathy are in decline. Feebleness of the faith has resulted in apathy toward the love of God. People continue to be entrenched in the love of the world. All this was bound to happen because the holy prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, had prophesied that such a time would come upon the Muslim Ummah community, when their actions would have a great resemblance with those of the Jews. They would perform all such acts as were performed by the Jews, so much so that if a Jew forced himself into a rat-hole, they would do likewise. At that juncture, a man born of Persian descent will impart the teaching of faith, Even if faith were to ascend to the Pleiades, this Persian would bring it down to earth. This is the prophecy of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Its interpretation has been made clear to me by divine revelation. All its aspects have been made manifest. God disclosed to me through divine revelation that Jesus, son of Mary, who was born 1400 years after Moses, came to attract people toward faith. He came at a time when the religious condition of the Jews was at a low ebb, and because of the weakness of their faith, they were engulfed in all such vices, which in fact are the offshoots of infidelity. Thus, when an approximate period of 1400 years elapsed after the advent of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, similar afflictions permeated into this Ummah, Muslim community as were experienced by the Jews, so that the prophecies made in their favor might be fulfilled. Therefore, God, out of his infinite omnipotence, sent a person similar to the first Messiah, Jesus Christ, to impart the teaching of faith to the Muslims. That Messiah who was to come has indeed come. Accept him if you wish. Those who have ears to listen, let them listen. This is the work of God the Almighty, however astonishing it may appear in people's eyes. If somebody would prefer to denounce, then let it be known that previous righteous people were also denounced. John the Baptist, or Elijah son of Zechariah, was never accepted by the Jews, although the Messiah, Jesus Christ, had given testimony to his truth. He said that he was the very person who was purported to have risen to heaven and whose descent from heaven had been foretold in the holy books. God speaks in metaphors, often substituting one name for the other, implying identical temperaments, characteristics, and capabilities. Anyone whose characteristics are analogous to that of Abraham is identified as Abraham in the sight of God. One similar in temperament to Omar Farooq, second successor of Muhammad, peace be on him, is termed as Omar Farooq by him. Do you not read that Hadith, sayings of Muhammad, peace be on him, which states that if this Umar, Muslim community, possesses any muhaddahdin recipients of divine revelation, to whom God speaks, then such a muhadatin is Omar, can this hadith be interpreted by saying that muhaddathiyat is terminated after Hadrat Omar? No, never. The meaning of this hadith is that at the need of the hour, whosoever attains to the spiritual excellence of Omar will be termed as a muhaddath, recipient of divine revelation. It was in this context that this humble self once received the revelation You have been gifted with the Faruqi instincts. These words are underlined. Thus, this humble self, in addition to the inherent similarities in characteristics to other saints whose detailed mention has been made in my book, entitled *Brachin e Ahmadiyya, possesses an intimate resemblance to Hazrat Masih, Jesus Christ, It was as a result of this resemblance that this humble servant was sent bearing the name of the Masich, Jesus Christ, so that the creed based upon crucifixion is shattered into pieces. Therefore I have been sent to break the cross and slay the swine. I descended from the heavens, accompanied by angels who were on my right and on my left. Until my task is accomplished, God will continue to assign these angels to descend on every consenting heart. Indeed, they are already descending. Even if I remain silent or my pen refrains from writing, those angels who have descended in my company will not stop the task assigned to them. They have been provided with powerful maces which they hold in their hands in order to break the cross and smash the false images of human worship. End of underlined passage. The ignorant might question the meaning of the descent of angels. Let it be known that it is the established custom of God that whenever a messenger, a prophet, or an appointed recipient of divine revelation is sent for the reformation of mankind, it becomes imperative that he is accompanied by such angels who instill guidance in all loving hearts. They induce the hearts toward goodness. They continue to descend until the darkness of profanity and corruption gives way to the break of the dawn of faith and truthfulness. The Almighty God says, The angels and the Spirit descend upon them by the command of their Lord, with their Lord's decrees concerning every matter. It is all peace till the break of the dawn. Surah al-Qadr, chapter 97, verses 5 and 6. So, the appearance of the angels and the Holy Spirit only takes place at the advent of a person of distinction who is dressed in the garb of hilafat and honored with a direct communion with God. This khalifa is specially gifted with the Holy Spirit and the angels in attendance are deputed to descend on all pious hearts. The reflection of this heavenly glow falls on all people of receptive talent and consequently the whole world is engulfed in the dazzle of this intense light. As a result of the noble influence of the angels, the hearts of such people are voluntarily inclined toward virtuous thoughts and are thus charmed by the concept of the unity of God. Upright hearts are charged with the inclination toward the search of truth. The spiritually frail are granted fortitude. Everywhere a breeze begins to blow which is supportive to the objectives of the reformer. An invisible hand is beckoning humanity so that they of themselves are hastening toward that reform which will bring out the best of their talents. Mankind is in a state of agitation and stir in anticipation of what is to come. At that juncture the ignorant contemplate that the world has taken a turn for the better all by itself. Indeed, this reformation is the result of the efforts of those angels who appear along with the Khalifa of God, Khalifa Tulah, and confer extraordinary powers upon people to understand and accept the truth. They awaken the masses from their slumber, alert the careless, grant hearing to the deaf, quicken the dead, and raise the entombed out of their graves. Then people suddenly begin to open their eyes and those issues that were until this time concealed from their hearts begin to unravel. In reality, these angels are not different from this khalifatullah, vice-regent of God. They are indeed a reflection of the divine illumination on his face and manifestations of his endurance toward his mission. Such a person may be physically distant or nigh, he may be an acquaintance or totally alien, yet all are attracted with a magnetic force, provided the capacity of reformation is present in them. In that period of the Khalifa, all the moves of humanity toward piety and the generation of enthusiasm, be it amongst the Asians, the Europeans, or the Americans, is the result of the motivation of the angels who appear alongside the vice-regent of God, Khalifa Tullah. This is a divine law which will never see change. It is clear and easy to understand. It is your misfortune if you fail to ponder over this occurrence, for this humble self has appeared from God with guidance and truth. Therefore, you will observe signs of my conformity to truth in every direction. That time is not far, indeed it is at hand, when you will observe armies of angels descending from heaven into the heart of Asians, Europeans, and Americans. You are already aware of the testimony of the Holy Koran that with the appearance of any vice-regent of God the appearance of angels is essential in order to incline hearts toward the truth. Therefore you should await the fulfillment of this sign. If you do not notice the appearance of the angels, or a clear evidence of their influence, or an extraordinary fervor in the hearts of humanity, then you are justified to contend that no one has appeared from the heavens. But if all these signs do come to pass, then you should refrain from rejecting the truth, lest you should be counted in the sight of God amongst the rebellious. The second sign is that God has blessed me with such spiritual proofs as are reserved only for his divines and which cannot be matched by other people. Therefore, if you have any misgivings, come and confront me, but rest assured that you do not possess the capacity to challenge me. You have the tongue, but not the heart. You have the body, but no life. You have the pupil in your eyes, but it is without spiritual insight. May God bestow upon you spiritual light so that you may see. The third sign is that that noble prophet, the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, whom you claim to follow has spoken about me. This has been recorded in the sikha Sittah, 6 authentic books of Hadith. But you have never pondered over it. In reality, you are the clandestine enemies of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, because instead of attesting to his sayings, you strive to falsify his prophecies. Now, there will be many who would write edicts of apostasy against me, and had it been possible for them, they would have murdered me. But this government, British, is not the government of such people who react excessively to provocations while lacking in understanding and tolerance. They are not such a government that revives the excesses of the Jewish era. Although this government does not possess any excellence of faith and grace, yet it is far better than the reign of King Herod with which Jesus, son of Mary, had to deal. It is also superior to the present-day Islamic states in many degrees with regards to peace, the spread of public welfare, bestowing of freedom, security, education of subjects, and also in the administration of law and justice and crushing of criminals. God, out of his infinite wisdom, raised Jesus Christ at a time when the Jews did not hold the reins of power. In my case, as well, the same wisdom was exercised so that it might be a sign for those who reflect. If the present-day apostates ridicule me and treat me with disdain, it should not be a matter of surprise since the previous generations have given a much worse treatment to the prophets of their time. Jesus Christ was also successively derided and mocked at. At one time, his brothers from the same mother conspired to have him declared as insane and put behind bars. Those who were unrelated to Jesus Christ stoned him and on a number of occasions tried to slay him. They spat at his face with great contempt. In fact, at one time they put him on the cross and thought they had killed him. Because his bones were not broken, he survived this ordeal with the help of a religious man who held Jews in high esteem. After spending the remaining years of his life, he was raised unto God. Quotation marks. His followers and intimate friends also showed extreme weakness of faith. One of them, Judas, received a bribe of thirty silver pieces and had him arrested. Another apostle, Peter, pointed at him and cursed him. The rest of the disciples who had professed great loyalty absconded and harbored many misgivings in their hearts about Jesus Christ. But because he was truthful in his claim, God revived his mission after a decline. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, as entertained by Christians, is, in fact, an indication of the resuscitation of his creed after its apparent death. Similarly, God gave me the glad tidings that he would grant me a new life after my death. He said that his trusted and favorites come back to life after their deaths. He said, I will reveal my splendor and show my power by raising you. Therefore, my new life here also means the revival of my objectives. But there are few who understand such mysteries. End of footnote number two. Return to main text. Thus, none should be rash in rejecting him, lest he should be taken as one who dares to oppose God. Those who are misguided and entrenched in obsolete conceptions will not accept him. But very soon a time would come when they would realize their folly. A warner came into the world, but the world accepted him not. But God will accept him and establish his truth by mighty assaults. This is not the word of man. This is the ever-inspiring pronouncement revealed by God. I have firm faith that the time for heavenly raids is near at hand, but they will not require the use of conventional weapons like swords and guns. Rather, the succor of God will appear in the shape of a spiritual ammunition. A fierce battle with the Jews, in quotation marks, will ensue. Who are they? They are the materialists of this age, who together follow the practices of Jews step for step. The heavenly sword will rip through them, and the Jewish traits of character will be wiped out. Everyone who obscures the truth, resembling the great one-eyed Dajjal, Antichrist, who, having lost the spiritual eye, views the world only with the eye of materialism, will be slaughtered with the sword of irrefutable arguments, and truth will triumph. Islam will once again be revived and will blossom as it had blossomed in earlier times. The day of Islam's glory and revival would dawn once again as it had risen before. But as yet the time has not come. With toil and sweat our livers may even begin to bleed in this path until such a time when it will seem as though we have abandoned all ease for the sake of that noble goal, and we willingly sacrifice all our honor for that cause. The revival of Islam demands a ransom from us. What is that ransom? That ransom is to die in this pursuit. This is the death on which depends the revival of Islam, the revival of Muslims and the manifestation of the living God. This is the sacrifice which, in other words, is known as Islam. This is Islam which God now intends to resuscitate. To bring about this great transformation, it was necessary that God himself should establish a dispensation, adequate and efficient in all respects. So, as a consequence, he who is the most wise, the most powerful, sent this humble self for the reformation of mankind. In order to attract the attention of humanity toward this divine dispensation, he distributed its sphere of activities into several branches, each devoted to the dissemination of truth and the propagation of Islam. Among those branches, one such branch is the writing and publication of books which has been assigned to this humble self. To undertake this task, I have been gifted with the essence of knowledge, with profound insight into the nature of things and their subtleties, which is beyond human reach alone, but can only be attained with the power of Allah. It is through the tutorship of the Holy Spirit that all difficulties were dispelled. The second branch of this dispensation is the publication of leaflets which under divine command is being undertaken to comply with the natural obligation we owe to all. Until now, more than 20,000 leaflets have been published to establish the truth of the Islamic belief over other creeds. This process will continue according to the need of the time. The third branch of this dispensation relates to the visitors seekers after truth, and people with diverse motives who, after hearing the news of this heavenly dispensation, come to visit me. This branch, as well, continues to be in full blossom. On some days, the inflow of visitors may be slow, but on other days it picks up to a brisk pace. Thus, during the past seven years, a little more than 60,000 guests must have visited me, up to what extent I was successful in offering spiritual assistance through speeches, solving their difficulties, and ridding them of their weaknesses, is best known to God. But there is no doubt that these lectures, delivered in response to questions by visitors and other talks given according to a particular situation and time, are in some ways more useful and effective than the writing of books. such contexts have proved to be most convincing and appealing to the heart. That is why all prophets have utilized this method. Apart from the word of God that was written with the pen and preserved in publications, all other dissertations of the prophets were spread by speeches delivered on the appropriate occasions. The general practice of the prophets has been that, like judicious lecturers, they would deliver speeches which were sustained by the strength of the soul, befitting the requirements of the situation. They did not speak like the speakers of today, whose only objective is to display their knowledge, or to overwhelm the simplistic public into accepting their false logic and misleading argumentation, thereby making their entry into hell even more deserving. Contrary to this, the prophets spoke without any embellishment and whatever sprung forth from their hearts, they poured into the hearts of others. Their divinely purified sayings were timed according to the requirement of the situation. They never spoke just for the sake of entertaining in the style of storytelling. Rather, after noticing the ailments of the public and seeing them steeped in various spiritual calamities, they would offer advice as an antidote for their afflictions or they would dissipate their doubts with irrefutable arguments. Their dialogue was characterized by fewer words, but with in-depth connotations. Therefore, this has been the pattern of the speeches of this humble self. My speeches are always tailored toward the spiritual prowess, the particular needs and spiritual ailments of my addressees. There follows lengthy footnote number three. Here is an episode which is worth mentioning. Some time ago, I had the occasion to go to Ali Ghar, India. While in Kadian, I had suffered a bout of mental fatigue. The effects of this ailment were still present. Consequently, I was not in a position to indulge in prolonged discussions or in any work requiring mental concentration. Even now I cannot speak for long or take up works requiring strenuous thinking. In such a state of health I met a maulvi cleric, from Ali by the name of Muhammad Ismail. He told me that the people of Ali had been waiting to see me for a long time. He suggested with great humility that the public would gather in a house where I should deliver a sermon of advice. All along it had been my ardent desire that I should utilize every opportunity of disclosing all that is true to the public. So I accepted this invitation with pleasure. I thought that I would be able to explain at this public gathering the true significance and meaning of Islam and how it had come to be, erroneously, understood by the masses. I thus assured the Maulvi Sahib that, Inshallah, God willing, I would be speaking on the significance of Islam. But after this commitment, I was forbidden by God from delivering this lecture. I am quite certain that because of my precarious health, the Almighty God did not want me to undertake anything involving such exertion for the fear that I might plunge into further physical predicament. So I was restrained by God from delivering the sermon. A similar incident had happened to me earlier, while in a frail frame of health, I was met by one of the earlier prophets in a vision. Out of sympathy and concern, he said, Why do you force upon yourself such mental hardship? This overexertion will make you ill. Anyway, my refusal to attend that meeting was due to the restriction imposed by God. I therefore presented my apology to the Malvi Sahib. This was a genuine excuse. People who may not even believe in my revelations, but having observed the intensity of this ailment which always flares up when I indulge in strenuous work or long talks, will bear me out that I am indeed suffering from this health problem. Currently I am under the medical care of Dr. Muhammad Hussein Khan, an honorary magistrate, who has always advised me to refrain from any strenuous mental task while the symptoms of this illness prevail. So, Dr. Khan is the prime witness of my ailment. Most of my companions, including brother Mauvi Hakim Nur-ud-Din, a physician to the state of Jammu, who remains devoted for my sympathy and welfare, are fully aware of this sickness. Another friend, named Munshi Abdul-Haq, an accountant employed in Lahore, attended me during this sickness, and served me with such diligence and affection that it is impossible to describe it. All these devoted companions are witnesses of my illness. I have to say this with regret, that although every Muslim has been enjoined never to fall prey to conjecture or suspicion, yet the Malvi Sahib gave no credence to my earnest plea. On the contrary, He chose to mistrust my excuse and indulge in manifest falsehood. A close associate of Malvi Sahib, known as Dr. Jamal Uddin, has published, with the consent of Malvi Sahib, certain allegations against me which I would like to reproduce here with my responses. Malvi Muhammad Ismail I asked him, that is, while this humble self was in Aligarh, that the next day, being a Jumach Friday, he should address the congregation. He consented to this, but the very next morning I received a note from him stating that God had restrained him from this address. I presume that this refusal was only a pretext for his dread and lack of speaking ability. My response. Malvi Sahib's apprehension is nothing but sheer distrust, which is strictly forbidden in the Sharia, code, and as well avoided by all noble people. If my claim to divine revelation had only been made in Aligarh, and at this particular occasion, then there was some justification of mistrust that I may have become nervous and scared by the sheer rank and knowledge of Malvi Sahib, and had wanted to find some lame excuse to avoid this encounter.' But my claim to be a recipient of divine revelation had been published all over the country six years before my visit to Aligarh. My book, Brahin e Amadilla is full of such claims. If I was so devoid of the ability to speak in public, how could I have composed books like Surmach, Kharsm, Arya, which were lectures delivered orally before thousands of people, both friendly and hostile? How could such books have originated from a feeble intellect, How could I have sustained to this day such a glorious campaign of public speaking, which entails intellectual confrontation with thousands of people of varying aptitudes, abilities, and tastes? Alas, the fire of jealousy has inwardly consumed most of the present-day and clerics. They mount the pulpits, and while quoting from the Holy Koran, Exhort the masses toward excellent traits of integrity, brotherliness, truthfulness, and mutual trust, yet they themselves never even touch the fringes of these injunctions. My dear sir, may God open your eyes. Is it not possible that God, out of his wisdom and due to some expediency, may restrain one of his favored servants from undertaking a particular task?' Another reason for this restriction may be that God had wanted to test and expose your concealed characteristics. He may have wanted that, as a consequence of this episode, all analogous elements tainted with the same obnoxious specks of character may be unveiled. As far as the assumption that I was scared by your scholarly prudence, let me declare that all those engulfed in worldly pursuits, may they be masters of all known philosophies and sciences do not even merit the value of a dead insect in my eyes. But you are not even a scholar of that caliber. You are a mere mullah, cleric, of the medieval age, and possess the same gloom and meanness as associated with clerics of that generation. You will know that my visitors include many talented research scholars and intellectuals who benefit from divine insight as a result of these contacts. Even if I called you a mere pupil in comparison to such scholars, that would be a compliment which you do not deserve. If your apprehensions and emotions of distrust are still not alleviated, then, with the help and compassion of God, I am prepared to confront you in a public debate. In view of my illness, I will not be able to undertake a long journey, but if you agree, I can invite you to travel at my expense to a central location like Lahore, the capital of Punjab. For this debate, I solemnly endorse this invitation and would await your reply. These words from Maul v. Muhammad Ismail. He, Mirza KHULAM Ahmad, is utterly incompetent and ignorant. My response Dear Sir, I have no claim to temporal wisdom or knowledge. What is the use of materialistic knowledge and craftiness, for they do not illumine the soul? They are not able to cleanse the internal filth. They fail to promote meekness and humility. Rather, they coat layer after layer of rust and faithlessness upon the soul. I am contented that the gracious God extended his gracious help to me, and granted me such knowledge which cannot be acquired from educational institutions, but can only be obtained through the grace of the heavenly Master. What reason would there be of any disgrace if I were to be labeled as Ummi, unlettered? Indeed, it would be a title of glory, because my Master and the Master and Guide of Humanity, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was also known as the Ummi, unlettered. I would never consider that skull worthy of any esteem which brags of its worldly knowledge while its outward and inner condition is filled with gloom. Open the Holy Koran and ponder over the similitude of the ass laden with books. Should this not be enough? These words from Malvi Muhammad Ismail. I questioned him, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, on the subject of divine revelation. Beyond giving some meaningless answers, he remained mute. My response. I recall that I responded with a very convincing answer which should have been sufficient for an average person with a certain level of intelligence and honesty. But you failed to comprehend my reply. Whose lack of intelligence was thus exposed? Yours or anyone else's? You could publish that correspondence in any newspaper to ratify your futile optimism. Malvi Muhammad Ismail says, It is impossible to believe that he, Mirza Khulam Ahmad, could be the author of such excellent books. My response, Why would you believe me to be the author of these books? The infidels of Mecca never believed in the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Even though they had seen him with their own eyes, because of the thick coverings over their minds, the sublime merits of prophethood were never unveiled to them. So they continued to contend that such eloquent speech which emanated from his lips and the Koran that was being recited before people was indeed the compilation of others who secretly taught him every morning and evening. In a sense, their contentions were justified, and whatever the Malvi Sahib said was also correct, since there is no doubt that the eloquence and wisdom contained in the words of the Holy Koran were far above the intellect of the Holy Prophet. In fact, they are far above the intellectual capacity of any human. Apart from the all-knowing and all-powerful God, this Koran could never have been conceived by anyone else. The books composed and published by this humble self are the result of an invisible assistance by God and above the level of, in, of my scholastic capacity. In reality, this is a cause of gratitude because, as a result of this criticism by the Malvi Sahib, a prophecy enumerated in my book, the Brachin e Ahmadiyya, has been fulfilled this prophecy stated that some people after reading this book would declare that it could not have been compiled by this man Brachin e Ahmadiyya, page two hundred thirty nine from Malvi Muhammad Ismail these words Sayyid Ahmad Arab who I consider to be highly reliable, narrated to me that he stayed with Mirza Hulam Ahmad for two months, enjoying the privilege of the inner circle of devotees. Occasionally, for the sake of curiosity and investigation, he stayed very near him on all important occasions. He observed that in reality Mirza Hulam Ahmad was in possession of certain astrological devices which he put to use. My response Come, let us call our sons and your sons, and our women and your women, and our people and your people. Then let us pray fervently and invoke the curse of God on those who lie. Surah al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 62. In reality, my response to your allegation is expressed in the above verse of the Holy Quran. I cannot recall any person by the name of Sayed Ahmad who stayed in my company for two months. The onus of proof is on the Maove Sahib to produce this man in my presence so that he may be asked to specify which astrological gadgets were observed to be in my possession. When I am still alive, why count on the good offices of an Arab or a non-Arab? The Maove Sahib himself may stay with me for two months as an observer. Speaks Maldi Muhammad Ismail. When I examine the wordings of these revelations, I am never convinced that they could be revelations from God. My response, Neither were the unbelievers during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, ever convinced. Even they were not certain as to who the following verse referred to and they totally rejected our signs. Surah al Naba, chapter 78, verse 29. Pharaoh never believed. The Jewish scribes and Pharisees did not believe. Abu Jahal and Abu Lahab never believed. But those who were meek at heart and pure in faith did believe. Such good fortune is never achieved merely by one's own struggle not until God himself confers this benefaction upon someone. From Malvi, Muhammad, Ismail, these words. To be a claimant of divine revelation is not compatible with the showing of miracles. To assert that anyone who denies such miraculous capacities should come in person and observe is a false notion. My response. These claims are not the words of man. Rather, they originate from him who alone possesses the right to make claims. Then who among those dedicated to truth can treat them as false? Yes, not even the prophets can lay claim to supernatural powers. But is it not permissible that God, through his holy prophet, apostle, or mukhadath, may make such a claim? Malvi Muhammad Ismail I completely lost my faith in him after our meeting. In my opinion, every person having a firm belief in the unity of God will not remain as his devoted follower after a meeting with him. He offers his prayers at the very limit of the designated time and is not particular about offering prayers in congregation. My response. I am not in the least perturbed by the skepticism of Maubi Sahib. Yet I am profoundly shocked at his deliberate lies and fabrications, and his extreme propensity to suspicion and mistrust. O God, have mercy on this Ummah of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, whose mentors and spiritual guides are considered to be the clerics of such caliber. Readers, let us now deliberate on the objections raised by Malvi Sahib which in effect are an outburst due to his lack of benevolence and extreme malice. Obviously, I stayed in Aligarh for a few days as a traveller. The Islamic Sharia has granted certain concessions to travellers, and the permanent forsaking of such concessions has been termed as tantamount to a sort of apostasy. My observance of such injunctions was essential, and so I did precisely what was expected of me. I do not deny the fact that on certain occasions during my short stay, while acting on the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, I joined the two prayers. Sometimes at the limit of the designated time I joined the tsur, past midday, prayer with the asr, afternoon prayer. You will be aware that certain religious scholars at times join the prayers even in their houses and continue to take advantage from the concessions whilst they are neither on a journey nor are prevented from going to the mosque because of inclement weather. I cannot deny this fact also that during this short stay I did not make it obligatory to visit the mosques for prayers. Yet despite my ill health and my being in a state of travel, I did not entirely relinquish this obligation. Malvi Sahib would remember that once I happened to say my Friday prayer behind him, the validity of which I have now begun to suspect. It is true that during my travels I always avoid attending mosques for prayers. But this attitude, God forbid, is not because of any apathy on my part or indifference to the injunctions of God. The actual reason is that in our country during this period of time the condition of our mosques has become very miserable and deplorable. If one attempts to lead the congregation in prayers at such mosques, then those who hold this office become annoyed and furious. Should one choose to stand behind an appointed imam, then I have doubts about the performance of such a prayer. This is because the leading of prayers has become an occupation of such imams, as have adopted this duty as a profession. They do not go to the mosque five times a day for the performance of prayers, Rather, they go to the mosque as if to open a shop, and it is through the income of this shop that they and their dependents earn their sustenance. Therefore, whenever there are changes like the dismissal or appointment of an imam, the aggrieved parties resort to litigations in courts. In order to get a verdict in their favor to lead the prayers, the Malvis file one petition after another in courts of law. Therefore, this is not imamat, leadership of prayers, but it is a heinous deed of debauchery. Are you not entwined in a similar selfish ordeal? Then why should one knowingly squander his faith? The prophecies of the holy prophet, peace be upon him, pertaining to the latter days, speak of the filling of mosques with hypocrites. These prophecies relate to such mullahs who stand at the niche in the mosque and recite the verses of the Holy Koran while their hearts keep count of the loaves of bread. I do not know when the permission to combine the Tsur asr prayers and the Maghrib Isha prayers in times of journey was abrogated, nor who passed the edict forbidding the offering of prayers at the limit of the stipulated time. It is amazing that you consider the consumption of your brother's dead flesh as wholesome, yet in times of travel you consider the combining of sur and asr prayers as totally forbidden. Fear God, you who claim to be the worshippers of one God, for the time of death is nigh and God is fully aware of what you hide. End of footnote number three. Main Text A spiritual ailment has first to be identified. In order to cure a person from that ailment and moral turpitude, arrows of necessary advice have to be pitched at the precise target. This is similar to the restoration of a dislocated joint to its correct position. This procedure requires the presence of the patient before a physician. That is the reason why God sent thousands of prophets and messengers, and exhorted the people to flock around them and benefit from their pious example. God desired that people of all generations should witness these godly exemplars with their own eyes, that, after witnessing the embodiment of the revelation of God in their persons, they may be encouraged to emulate them. Had the Quote, association with the righteous, end quote, not been an essential of faith, instead of the prophets and messengers, God could have devised other means of delivering his message to human beings. Or he would have confined prophethood, apostleship, and revelation to the early period only, and then terminated this institution for good. But God's profound wisdom and sagacity did not permit this to happen. At the time of need, whenever the love and worship of God, righteousness, purity, and other essential elements of faith suffered deterioration, devout saints, fortified with divine revelation, have been appearing as models in the world. Both the propositions are interdependent. If God is concerned to provide guidance for the reformation of humanity, then it is equally essential that he continue to send his elects, who have been gifted with divine insight and steadfastness, to tread upon the path of his choice. Obviously, this Herculean task of reformation cannot be accomplished solely by academic efforts. For its accomplishment, one must stride on the same path That was chosen by the righteous prophets of God. At the very inception, Islam firmly held on to this effective mode of reformation, which has no parallel in any other religion. Who can present a similar example of over ten thousand devoted companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who consistently lay at his threshold, captivated with perfect conviction and humility, to seek guidance toward absolute truth. No doubt the prophet Moses, peace upon him, was also given a community, Jamarat, but what a rebellious and arrogant community. How distanced and detached from spiritual companionship and steadfastness. Readers of the Bible and scholars of Jewish history are well aware of these facts. By contrast, the community of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, developed such unity and spiritual fraternity in the cause of the Prophet that in the true spirit of Islamic brotherhood they became as if they were but one limb. The divine radiance of Prophethood had permeated so deep in their lifestyle and mutual relations that they became the perfect reflections of the character of the Holy Prophet. The vulgar idol worshippers accomplished the loftiness of absolute divine worship those who were perpetually immersed in worldly concerns forged such an intimate bond with their true and beloved God that for his sake they spilled their blood like the spilling of water. This great miracle of inner change, which transformed his followers, was indeed the result of spending their entire lives in the company of a true and perfect prophet, thereby marching in his footsteps. It is precisely for this reason... That this humble servant, who has been commissioned to establish this religion, desires that the circle of visitors who would like to stay with me and derive benefit from my intimate companionship should be further expanded. The circle of those who can come and stay near me and dwell close to me day and night, they should dwell close to me. They should also be gifted with that sublime taste with which I have been gifted and the light of Islam may thus spread all over the earth, while the ugly stain of hatred and ignominy may be wiped from the forehead of Muslims. It was with such glad tidings for the uplift of Muslims that I was sent by the Almighty God. He spoke to me, saying, Arise, for your finest hour is nigh. And very soon the followers of Muhammad, peace be upon him, will mount a high minaret where their feet will be firmly implanted. The fourth branch of this dispensation is the correspondence that is written both by the seekers after truth, in quotation marks, or by the antagonists. It is estimated that during the past years over 90,000 letters must have been received and duly responded to, except those that were considered to be worthless or unimportant. This work also continues unabated. During each month, about three hundred to seven hundred letters are received and replied to. In some months, the number may reach a thousand. The fifth branch of this great project, which is established under the express inspiration and revelation of God, is the widening of the circle of devotees and of those who take the oath of initiation. By at, at my hand. At the time of the establishment of this dispensation, God spoke to me, saying, The world is engulfed in a storm of misguidance. During this storm you should construct this ark. He who embarks on the ark will be saved from drowning. Death would await those who continue to reject. And he said, Anyone who slips his hand in your hand in allegiance slips it not in your hand, but rather in the hand of God. And again God the Almighty gave me the glad tidings by saying, I will cause you to die and then raise you to myself, but your true followers and devotees will always excel those who rejected you till the day of judgment. These are the five branches of this dispensation which have been established by God with his own hand. A person with a superficial perception might consider the writing and printing of books to be the only important project of this dispensation. He would consider the other branches as unimportant and worthless. But in the sight of God, all these branches are obligatory. The great reform which God intends to initiate cannot be accomplished without the coordination of these five branches. However, the success of the project is entirely dependent upon the extraordinary support and singular blessing of God. He alone is sufficient for its triumphant completion. It is his heartening promises which grant tranquility and respite. But it is also under his instructions and incentive that the attention of the Muslims is invited toward monetary assistance. This appeal is in keeping with the practice of all the earlier prophets of God who appealed for such assistance from their followers in times of distress. It is solely for this purpose that I launch this appeal. It is quite obvious that for the successful implementation of all the five wings of this heavenly scheme, considerable help is required from the collective body of Muslims. Take, for example, the field of publication alone visualize how much preparedness is required and what sacrifices, financial or otherwise, are warranted. This alone will make the reader realize the massiveness of this task. If we assume the responsibility of a program for the extensive distribution of books, what would be the financial requirements for the successful implementation of such a task? If the publication and distribution of books is our only goal, then we should ensure that our religious publications which are bejeweled with works of research and thorough investigation and capable of attracting seekers after truth, reach all those who are in the grip of life-threatening diseases and are at the brink of spiritual dissolution as a result of false teachings. We should be able to see every seeker of truth with our literature in his hands. This goal cannot be properly achieved if our publications are entirely conditional on the outcome of sales. In fact, such worldly concerns of directly linking our publication endeavor with that of sales is in itself futile and highly objectionable. If we bind ourselves to this policy, we cannot publish our books on any large scale, nor make them available to reach a sufficiently large number of readers within a reasonable time. It is a fact that the free dispatch of a hundred thousand books to all far away countries could be accomplished in just a matter of twenty days. The books could thus reach people of all shades of opinion and all those in search of true faith. Perhaps such an excellent endeavor could not be accomplished in twenty years if we had placed a price tag on our books. This way the books will have to be stacked away while we await possible buyers. Who may or may not turn up. It is likely that during this long wait we may pass away from the world, leaving our books stored in cartons. So the method of merely relying on sales for the circulation of our books is very narrow. Such a method will severely impede the wide circulation of our books, ruin our real objective, and a task of a two-year period will be extended to centuries. Among the Muslims, no affluent philanthropist has as yet come forward to defray the expenses on our new publications and make them available for free distribution. The Muslims do not have a book society similar to the Christian mission, which could lend support in this field. Footnote number four, short. It is said that the British Foreign Bible Society, since its inception twenty-one years ago, has printed and circulated over the entire world more than seventy million books in support of the Christian religion. Affluent yet indolent Muslims of today should solemnly contemplate on these figures with a feeling of shame. This news item appeared in the newspapers of October and November, 1890. Were such publications dependent upon the proceeds of sales, or were they the feet of a devoted national organization which has undertaken this scheme of the free distribution of books in the interest of their faith? End of footnote number four. Main text. Life is unpredictable, and we cannot afford to wait indefinitely for the accomplishment of this work. Therefore, from the beginning, I have made it an obligation that, as far as possible, a sizable portion of my publications will be distributed without any remuneration, so that these books, which are laden with the spiritual light of truth, may quickly spread all over the world. But as my meager resources were not such as to sustain this glorious responsibility single-handed, especially at a time when the expenses of the other important branches also had to be catered for, this branch of the publication of books proceeded to a certain level and then had to be held back. It is still held in abeyance. In the sight of God, all these five branches are equally important. It is his desire that these branches be fully implemented and firmly established but the enormous expenditure involved in the simultaneous implementation of all these five branches calls for the concerted efforts and attention of the devotees. It would take considerable time if I were to write the details of these religious necessities. But, O my brethren, just for a while consider the stream of guests and inquirers, who in the past seven years may have numbered over sixty thousand. One can estimate the amount that must have been spent on the hospitality of these revered guests. You can consider the quantity of winter and summer bedding which would have been procured for their comfort. Nevertheless, the prudent would be amazed at how the reception and hospitality of such a large number of guests became feasible, and under which circumstances such an immense service is being continued. 20,000 pamphlets were printed in English and Urdu. Then over 12,000 of these were mailed by registered post to all antagonist leaders. There was not a single Christian clergyman in India who was not sent these leaflets by registered post. These leaflets were also sent to Europe and America by registered post, so as to leave no pretext of unawareness. Considering the huge expense involved in this exercise and our meager resources, is it not a point of astonishment how such expenditure was sustained? These are only the major heads of expenditure. If the monthly expenditure on postage of correspondence alone is scrutinized, it will be found to be so huge that there is apparently no means to support it. Then there are those who, after taking the Oath of Allegiance, would like to stay in my company on the pattern of the Ashabus Sufa of the era of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. For their sustenance also, my eyes are hinged toward the heavens. I am sure that the omnipotent God will himself devise certain means for the continuation of all of these five branches, since the very inception of this dispensation has been his own distinctive scheme. I was just obliged to keep the populace informed of these issues. I have heard that some people who are unaware of the facts propagate this accusation against me, although I had received in advance the price of the books and an additional contribution of rupees three thousand yet I failed to publish the whole series of my book, Brachin e Ahmadiyya, as promised. In response to this, let me first update my accusers and declare that the total amount collected from the public was not rupees three thousand, but in addition to this sum, there was a further amount received which totaled nearly rupees ten thousand. This amount was paid neither for the publication of the book nor as the cost of the book. Rather, this was either a donation by some who requested prayers or by others who rendered this service out of sheer love. Accordingly, the money was spent from time to time for the current and contingent expenses of sustaining this divine project. Thus, no funds were available after fulfilling the obligations of other notable branches, to continue with the publication of this book. It was his noble wisdom that caused a delay in the task of publication of this book because in this period I was granted insight into certain intricacies and absolute truths. It also afforded my opponents the opportunity to fully vent their animosity toward me. Now that God is again inclined toward the completion of the remaining portion of the publication project, he has directed my attention toward the writing of this article, so I now perceive a burning desire to complete my writing and publishing project. A sizable portion of Brahin is ready for printing. If this book is printed, it could be delivered to all buyers and those on the complimentary list. Similarly, other books such as Ash Atul Koran, Siraj i Munir, Tajdid i Deen, fi al muhurabilin can also be distributed. I also have the intention of writing a commentary on the Holy Koran. It is my ardent desire that a monthly journal should be published, dealing with all erroneous faiths like Christianity, and which should act as an appropriate counter to their newspapers. There is no hindrance to the setting in motion of these projects except the paucity of funds. If we can afford a printing press of our own, a full-time copy technician, other printing paraphernalia like paper and ink, etc., and regular funds to pay the salaries of the staff, this one branch could fully thrive and be adequately taken care of. Alas, O India, can't you produce even a single resolute and affluent person who, if not all, could at least be capable of shouldering the financial responsibility of this single branch? Author's Emphasis If just five wealthy devotees could realize the gravity of the situation, they could take care of all the five branches. O my beloved God, you alone can stimulate these dormant hearts. Islam is not so impoverished, Muslims may be miserly but never destitute. Those who do not possess the potential to pay for the complete project can still help by a firm promise of regular monthly payments according to their financial ability. Indolence, apathy, and misgivings never serve a religious cause. Households become desolate as a result of mistrust, and hearts become fragmented. Recall how the contemporaries of past prophets were ever eager to lay down their lives for the propagation of faith. Just as a rich man offered his cherished wealth, so did the mendicant tender his haversack filled with crumbs, and they continued to persist in their struggle until God bestowed upon them the hour of triumph. To be a Muslim is not easy. To merit the title of a believer is not that simple. So, O ye people, if you possess that spirit of rectitude which is granted to the faithful, then do not view this appeal with disdain. Hasten to develop the characteristic of piety, since God is watching you from the heavens to see your response to this appeal. O ye Muslims, who are the surviving vestiges and descendants of resolute and noble believers, do not rush toward the rejection and distrust of this appeal. Rather, dread that epidemic which is fast spreading around you. A multitude has already been snared in its treachery. Do you notice the ferocity of the attempts to wipe out the religion of Islam? Is it not equally incumbent upon you as well to strive in this cause? The religion of Islam is not man-made, that it could suffer desolation through the intrigues of man, but woe to those who are engrossed in attempts at its extermination. Alas, Muslims have enough to spend upon their wives and children, enough to squander upon personal lavishness, but for Islam their pockets are empty. Ye sluggish and lethargic, woe unto you! You do not possess the ability to strengthen the religion of Islam and demonstrate its miraculous powers, yet you fail to accept with gratitude this divine dispensation which has been established by God to manifest the dazzling truth of Islam. Today Islam is likened unto a light that has been caged in a chest or to a sweet fountain that has been concealed by twigs and leaves. That is why Islam is in decline and its beautiful face is shrouded from the world. Its enchanting silhouette cannot be seen. It was vital for the Muslims to liberate Islam from this confinement at all costs. Not to speak of financial sacrifices alone, if so needed. They should have shed their blood like the pouring of water, but they failed to do that. They are still engrossed in their ignorance, saying, are the previous books not sufficient? They are oblivious that to combat new intrigues, fresh techniques have to be devised. At the onset of every spiritual gloom, prophets, messengers, and reformers have been coming to the world. At the time of their advent, were the previous books not already present? Brothers, it is therefore essential that at the spread of darkness, a heavenly light must descend from heavens. As earlier mentioned in this book, God gives glad tidings to the faithful in Surah al-Qadr that his prophet and his revelation descended from the heaven during the period of Laylatul kadr the Night of Decree, Every guide and reformer who is commissioned by God always appears during the Night of Decree. Do you understand what is meant by the Night of Decree? The Night of Decree, or the Laila Tulkadr is the name of a night when spiritual darkness reaches its ultimate gloom. That gloom, metaphorically, demands a light from heaven for its dissipation. This night is symbolically called the Night of Decree. In fact, it is not a night, but a period, which is referred to as a night because of its intense darkness. One thousand months is the approximate lifespan of a human being. It is also a period after which normal human senses cease to function. The elapse of a period of one thousand months followed the demise of a prophet or his spiritual successor also signals the commencement of a night, in quotes, of darkness. This night triggers a fervor in the heavens and the seeds of the birth of one or more reformers is stealthily sown. Thus, such a reformer or reformers prepare to emerge at the head of the new century. The following verse is also an indication by God toward this phenomenon. The night of decree is better than a thousand months. Surah al-Qadr, chapter 97, verse 4. Meaning that anyone who perceives the blessings of this night of decree, or anyone who benefits from the company of the reformer of the age, is better than an eighty-year-old man who failed to behold this blessed time. Even if he witnessed a single moment of this blessed era, it was better than his past one thousand months. Why is that moment better? Because during that period, in support of the Reformer, the angels of God and the Ruh-ul-Kudas, Holy Spirit, descend from the heavens. They manifest themselves upon the hearts of the faithful for the purpose of unveiling the path to guidance. They remain fully engaged in this endeavor until the gloom of delinquency vanishes, ushering in a dawn of piety. Now, O Muslims, ponder over these verses and observe how God praises that blessed period in which, at the need of the hour, a reformer is sent unto the world. Would you not acknowledge the value of this period? Would you view with ridicule and taunt the covenants of God the Almighty?' So, O Muslims who have been granted affluence, listen. I convey the message to you that it is obligatory for you to wholeheartedly support this divinely inspired reformatory dispensation. You should hasten to do justice to this scheme after considering with absolute sincerity all its aspects. Those who prefer to denote a certain amount each month according to their ability may do so with perfect regularity. They should consider the regular payment of this donation as an essential obligation and a debt which must be paid. They should fix this sum purely for the sake of God and never be guilty of taking this commitment lightly. Those who opt to make a single lump sum payment may do so, but it should be remembered that for the uninterrupted functioning of this scheme, a group of dedicated people should make it incumbent upon themselves to make regular monthly payments at ease, barring unforeseen circumstances. Yes, he who has been granted adequate means by God and feels an inner urge without prejudice may make ad hoc lump-sum donations in addition to his monthly contribution. O my companions, my beloved, the flourishing branches of the tree of my being, you who have been blessed by God and thereupon came into the fold of my community and continue to passionately sacrifice your life, your comfort, and your wealth in this cause. Although I am fully aware that whatever I say, you will deem its acceptance as your good fortune, and will never hesitate to do whatever is to the full extent of your capacity, yet for this service I hesitate to fix with my own mouth a definite amount as an obligation upon you, so that your services should not be the result of my directive but should proceed out of your own free will. Who is my companion? Who is dear to me? He who recognizes my station. Who recognizes me? Only he who is firmly convinced that I have been sent by God. He who accepts me in the same way as those sent earlier are accepted. The world cannot accept me, for I am not of this world but those whose inherent nature has been gifted with a portion of the knowledge of the other domain are accepting me and will continue to accept me. He who forsakes me indeed forsakes him who sent me. He who is grafted unto me is grafted unto him from whom I have come. I hold a lamp in my hand. Any person who comes to me will certainly partake of the light of this lamp but those who flee as a result of delusion and distrust will be thrown into darkness. I am the invincible citadel of this age. Writer's Emphasis Only he who enters therein will be secure from the scourge of swindlers, crooks, and ferocious beasts, but he who prefers to stay away from my periphery will continue death from all directions. Even his corpse will not be secure. Who is it who enters my citadel? Only he who discards all vice and instead embraces the path of rectitude. He who gives up the path of crookedness and treads along the path of truthfulness. He who cuts asunder from the bondage of Satan and becomes an obedient servant of God. Everyone who does that is of me and I am of him. But only he succeeds in accomplishing this feat, who is placed by God the Almighty under the shadow of a muzaki, purifier. He then stamps out under his feet the hell of his ego. The fire within him is quenched and cooled as if there had never been any fire. Then he begins to accomplish brisk spiritual progress till the Spirit of God Almighty dwells in him. And as a result of a remarkable divine phenomenon, God, the Lord of the worlds, firmly establishes himself upon his heart. Thus his old individuality is incinerated, and he is accorded a new and purified temperament. For him, God Almighty becomes a new God, establishing a fresh and unique attachment with him. He is bestowed in this very world with all the immaculate blessings of a blissful life. At this juncture I cannot refrain from expressing my intense gratitude to the Almighty God, who out of His grace and mercy never left me alone. Those who developed a bond of brotherhood with me by joining this community that was established by God with His own hand are imbued with a unique tint of love and devotion. Such spiritual souls, satiated with sincerity, that are granted to me were not acquired by any act of diligence on my part, but entirely due to the distinctive blessing of God. First of all, I experience an immense fervor in my heart for the mention of a spiritual brother whose name, Nur-ud-Din, the brilliance of faith, is synonymous with his brilliant services. I have always cast wistful looks at some of the religious services which he renders with his lawful earnings for the propagation of Islam. Alas, if I could also perform such services, the portrayal of the unlimited power and authority of God comes to mind when I ponder at the intensity of his devotion toward Islam. I marvel at how God attracts people toward his cause. He stands resolute and ever ready to sacrifice all the wealth and property at his disposal in obedience to God and his prophet. It is my conviction, which is based upon experience and not upon mere optimistic speculation, that, not to speak of wealth alone, he is even ready to sacrifice his honor and life for my sake. Had I permitted, he would have given up everything and come to live with me here. Thus, he would be physically close to me, as he is spiritually close already. As a specimen, I reproduce a few lines before my readers from some of his correspondents to indicate how my revered brother Malvi Hakim nur ud of Behra, physician to the state of Jammu, has advanced in the path of love and loyalty. The lines are as follows. These lines are in dark print, indicating emphasis. Maulana, my mentor, my leader. Assalamu alaikum wa ramatullahi wa barakatuhu. Sir, it is my prayer that I ever remain in the company of the Imam Uz Zaman, reformer of the age, to be enlightened with all the knowledge for which he has been sent to impart. If permitted, I am ready to resign from my post and remain at your service day and night. Or, if you order, I may travel across the world and invite people toward the true religion and lay down my life in this endeavor. May I be sacrificed in your way. What I possess is not mine, it is yours. Honored Leader and Guide, I implore very truly that if all my wealth and property were to be spent in the propagation of faith, I would have achieved my purpose. If the subscribers of brahmin are restive over the delay in its printing, please allow me to render this insignificant service of refunding their entire deposits. My Honored Mentor and Guide, This unworthy and humble servant pleads that it is my desire, and I would consider it as my good fortune, if I am permitted to shoulder the entire expenditure of the printing of Brahin. Then all the amount that is accrued in the sale of this book may be utilized for your needs. My association with you is on the Faruqi pattern, and I am ready to sacrifice everything in this cause. Please pray that my death would be of the level of true and loyal believers. of accentuated print. Malvi Sahib's selfless services outshine the sincerity, courage, sympathy, and devotion as expressed in his words. Out of his sheer love and devotion he would desire to present everything Even the essentials of sustenance of his family for this cause. His soul, in an outburst of love, tends to urge him to outstrip his capability. He continues to spend each and every moment in assistance to me. Footnote number five, short. Hadrat Malvi Sahib is highly knowledgeable in the field of fiqh Islamic jurisprudence. Hadith recorded sayings of the Holy Prophet, blessings upon him, and tafsir exegesis. He has an excellent understanding of philosophy and natural sciences, both ancient and modern. In the field of medicine he is a most able physician. His library consists of a unique collection of very rare books on every branch of study imported from Egypt, Arabia, Syria, and Europe he is not only an eminent scholar in such fields but also exercises a broad insight and proficiency in religious debates he is the author of some excellent books the book entitled tasdeeq E ahmadiya has also been penned by the same praiseworthy scholar in the sight of scholarly people the contents of that book are far more valuable than a heap of gems and precious stones End of footnote number five. Main text. It would be extremely insensitive to overburden such a selfless devotee with a load that demands to be borne by a group of people, although to accomplish this service Malvi Sahib would willingly relinquish all his belongings and proclaim the maxim of the prophet Job that, quote, alone I came and alone I depart Yet this is a joint national responsibility. It is obligatory on all that in this age of evil and mischief, which is violently jerking the delicate link of faith between God and man, everyone should be duly concerned about their graceful demise. They should perform such noble deeds on which salvation depends, like the sacrifice of one's cherished wealth and the expending of precious time in his service. They should heed the unchangeable and established statute of God as contained in his holy book, you can never attain true piety that leads to salvation until you spend in the cause of God out of the wealth and things that are dear to you. Surah al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 93. Here, I think, it would be appropriate to mention a few more of my devoted companions who entered into the fold of this divine community and have great love and warmth for me. One of them is Brother Sheikh Muhammad Hussein of Muradabad, India. He has traveled from Muradabad to Kadyan merely for the sake of God and is engaged in writing this manuscript of mine for the press. I perceive and compare his spotless bosom to a mirror. His deep devotion and affection for me is just for the sake of God. His heart is saturated with the love of God. He possesses a marvelous personality. I consider him as a brilliant beacon for the people of Muradabad. I am hopeful that the light of sheer love and devotion which he possesses will one day permeate to others as well. Although Sheikh Sahib possesses meager resources, yet he has a benevolent heart and a clear bosom. He remains occupied in every service for this humble self. His faith, satiated with love, has entered in his every vein and fiber. Another such companion is Brother Hakim Fazal Din of Bera. I find it impossible to describe the love, devotion, esteem, and intimate relationship with which Hakim Sahib holds me. He is my true well-wisher, a sincere sympathizer, and a person of matchless understanding. After God had directed my attention toward the writing of this paper and strengthened this intention with assurances through his distinctive revelations, I conferred with a number of my companions, none of whom conceded to my proposal. But this brother of mine, even before I had mentioned this proposal to him, on his own volition prompted me to write such an article. He also donated a sum of one hundred rupees toward the expense of this project. I am amazed at the faculty of his spiritual instinct, for his desire coincided with the desire of God. He continues to offer contributions secretly. He has secretly donated hundreds of rupees merely to win the pleasure and approval of God. May God reward him exceedingly. Among such friends is my dear brother Mirza Azim Baig, Marhum Va chief of Samana, state of Patiala, whose separation by death has cast a gloom over our heart. He passed away from this temporary abode on the 2nd of Rabi Ul Sani, 1308 A.H. Surely to God we all belong, and to him shall we return. Surah al baqarah chapter 2, verse 157. Our eye is moist and our heart in grief, and we mourn his separation. The level of Mirza Sahib's tremendous affection for me and how he was immolating himself for my sake, where can I find the words to express that fervent love? My grief and sorrow at his premature demise is such that I rarely find its parallel in my past life. He is our beloved and the chieftain of our goal who departed at a time when we had least expected as long as we live, we can never forget the grief of his departure. There is such pain in my heart that if I were to stop the flow of tears from my eyes, the tears will roll down from my sleeves to the edge of my robe. The memory of his separation fills my heart with sadness and my bosom with a sense of aching. Overwhelmed with sorrow, the heart mourns and the eyes shed tears, His entire being was a personification of love. Mirza Sahib was also dauntless in the performance of deeds demonstrative of his passionate devotion. He had devoted his life solely towards this cause. Although Mirza Sahib was of scanty means, yet in times of religious needs he would consider wealth to be less valuable than a handful of dust. His intelligence and wisdom in comprehending divine intricacies was of a very high standard. The endearing conviction and confidence with which he held this humble self was indeed a sign of God. He was such a pleasant person that seeing him was so exhilarating as if one had beheld a garden laden with flowers and fruit. Apparently he has departed, leaving his dependents, including an infant, completely impoverished, and in utter destitution. O God, the Omnipotent, you become their means of sustenance and support, and inspire the hearts of my friends to demonstrate benevolence for the bereaved descendants of this sincere brother. O God, comforter of grieved hearts, the humble find refuge in thee, and the sinner's forgiveness. Out of thine grace, forgive him, thy servant." Lend thy compassion to the bereaved who are left behind. I have only mentioned a few of my associates as an illustration. There are others of the same caliber whose detailed mention will be made, Inshallah, God willing, in another book. This essay continues to lengthen, so for the moment, only this much. At this point I consider it appropriate to state that all who have entered into the covenant of Bayat are not such that I could express a good opinion about them. Instead, I view some of them as the dry branches of a tree, whom my God, who is my guardian, will one day sever from me and hurl into the pile of firewood. There are others who showed a certain amount of devotion and sincerity in the beginning, but have now become indifferent. They have lost the glow of warmth and enthusiasm associated with the loving disciples. Indeed, the intrigues of Balaam are all that remains in them. They are likened to rotten teeth, waiting to be extracted and trampled upon. They become exhausted with fatigue. This corrupted world clenched them in the snare of its deception. I say this with conviction that very soon they will be cut off from me. Except such among them whom God chooses to save afresh with his own hand, There are those, of course, whom God has permanently handed over to me. They are indeed the evergreen branches of the tree of my being. I shall, Inshallah, God willing, write about them on another occasion. It would be appropriate here to dispel the conceited views of some wealthy people who deem themselves as having offered rich sacrifices in the cause of God while they are extremely reluctant to spend their wealth on the right cause whenever it arises. They say that had they been born in the period of a true man sent from God for the rejuvenation of faith, they would have come forward to help him and even be ready to be sacrificed for him. But what can they do in an age rampant with swindlers and cheats? But let it be clear to you that a person has already been sent in support of the faith but you failed to recognize him. He is among you, and it is he who is addressing you now. But there are heavy veils covering your eyes. If your hearts are in search of truth, it should not be difficult to verify the claim of one who professes to be in communion with God. Come to him. Stay in his company for two or three weeks, if Allah so wills. You may also witness blessings being showered upon him, and many a spiritual light which descends upon him. It is he who finds, who seeks. He who knocks, it is for him that the door is opened. If you lament the absence of the sun, after having locked yourself up in a dark closet, with your eyes shut, then your moaning will be in vain. O bereft of clear vision, open the door of your closet, and remove the covering from your eyes so that you may not only see the sun, but may also bask in its light. Some claim that the founding of Andrumans and the opening of schools is sufficient to promote the cause of faith. But they fail to understand what faith is, nor do they understand the ultimate objective of our creation, or what the means of achieving such objectives are. They should realize that the ultimate goal of this life is to attain a true and certain bond with God, such as would sever our ties with relations based on animal instincts. The paths leading to such certainty and conviction cannot be attained through human deliberations and schemes. Human devices and philosophies are of no avail. Rather, in the times of darkness, this light always descends from the heavens through his chosen servants, He who comes from heaven, it is only he who can lead you to heaven. Therefore, O ye who are buried in pits of darkness and those who are held in the claws of doubt and suspicion and are slaves of selfish desires, do not pride over the mere title or legacy of Islam. Do not consider that the formation of syndicates and schools is the answer for your true solace, genuine welfare, and ultimate success. Basically, these things are useful and can be regarded as the initial steps, but they are very far off from the final objective. These exercises may generate some intellectual ingenuity, astuteness, intelligence, or debate. They may help a person to be called a sage or a renowned scholar both in quotes it is also possible that a long and sustained schooling might result in the partial achievement of the ultimate objective but as the persian saying goes before the arrival of the antidote from iraq the snake bitten victim may succumb to the venom therefore wake up and be vigilant lest you stumble and find yourself in a state of apostasy and disbelief as you traverse the final journey to the hereafter. Know for certain that salvation in the hereafter does not entirely depend on the acquisition of conventional knowledge. The manifestation of a heavenly light is essential for the removal of the dirt of skepticism and lack of conviction. It is indeed necessary for the negation of the fire of sensual obsession, it draws man towards sincere love true affection and obedience to god if you confer with your conscience it is bound to respond by saying that you do not possess that genuine satisfaction and inherent tranquillity that is essential for the instantaneous spiritual transformation therefore how unfortunate that you do not possess even a minute fraction of the keenness and enthusiasm for the publication of literature pertaining to this divine scheme that you possess for the printing of works of mere customary sayings and knowledge. Generally, your life is devoted toward such pursuits as have little relevance toward the uplift of faith, or are of little significance and very remote from the ultimate objective. If you were equipped with such sensibilities and wisdom as stop only at the essential scheme of things, then you would not rest until you had reached that ultimate objective. O humankind, you are created for the recognition and the consequent obedience and love of your true creator, the one alone who is truly worthy of worship. Therefore, until the ultimate and final purpose of your creation does not fully dawn upon you, you remain very remote from true salvation. If you are candid, You could be an attestant to your own internal state that instead of the worship of God, a gigantic idol of materialism permanently dwells within you, before whom you prostrate a thousand times each second. You are so engrossed in the affairs of the world that you do not have the leisure of glancing at anything else. Do you ever think about the ultimate and final end of this creation? Where are the characteristics of justice? Where is your integrity? Where are the qualities of truthfulness, sympathy, honesty, and humility toward which the Koran beckons you? Even during the years gone by, it never ever occurred to you that we indeed have a Creator. Have you ever thought of your obligation toward Him? The plain truth is that you never developed any concern, link, or affiliation with the God of ultimate existence. Even the very mention of his name is cumbersome upon you. Although in your worldly affairs and concerns you exhibit extraordinary wisdom and solemnity, yet your proficiency, your deep and far-reaching insight, end at the fringes of this worldliness, and you cannot visualize in the least that which belongs to the other world, the world your souls are created to inhabit eternally. But in your entire life you have never even once reflected on the hereafter, whose happiness is permanent and assured beyond a shadow of doubt. What misfortune that you are sitting absolutely unaware of the most important issue that matters in life, and your eyes are completely shut to it, while day and night you are madly engaged in lustful pursuits which are of matters only transient and are fit only to be forgotten you are fully aware that, without doubt, an instant will finally come which will suddenly terminate your life and all that you yearned for. But this is a peculiar type of callousness that, despite a complete knowledge, you continue to wreck your entire time in worldly quests. And your pursuit of materialism is not confined only to the lawful means. You do not stop short of employing falsehood, deceit, and even the ruthless murder of truth to gain your objectives. Despite all these ignominious crimes which are rampant in you, you continue to assert that there was no need for divine light or a divine commission. In fact, you nurture an extreme animosity toward it. You have looked down with contempt at this heavenly dispensation of God, so much so that, If you ever mention these things, you do it with words full of foul language, with eyebrows drawn with arrogance and upturned noses. You insistently demand to know how you can reach the stage of certainty that this institution is from God. I have just answered this question. This tree can be recognized by its fruit, and this luminary moon can be recognized by its light. Now it is up to you, either to accept it or reject it, and again it lies with you to remember my admonitions or wipe them out from your memories. During one's lifetime, the qualities of a person are not appreciated, my dear ones. You will remember my admonitions after I am no more. EPILOGUE AN ELEGY ON THE SCHISMS OF ISLAM It would be befitting if every eye of people belonging to Islam should shed tears. Troublesome times have come for Islam with grave problems and fearsome trials. There is a tumult everywhere in the world because of the rejection and grudge against Islam. He whose soul is unfortunate to be devoid of any good or virtue still dares to find fault with the best of God's messengers. He who is bound and confined in the prison of unrighteousness is critical of the leader of all who are righteous. Every foul wretch born with the propensity to crime aims his arrows at the paragon of virtue. It behooves heaven to pelter stones upon the earth. Before your very eyes, Islam is biting dust. What justification will you offer, then, to God, O oh, you who lead a life of comfort and luxury? All around a storm of disbelief is raging like the army of Yazid. The true faith, on the other hand, is sick and helpless like Zainal Abidin. The well-to-do people are overly engaged in a life of luxury for themselves lounging in the company of beautiful women, laughing and rejoicing. As far as the religious scholars are concerned, they are engaged only in mutual fights, spitting venom at each other. As for the recluses, they are absolutely oblivious of the requirements of faith. Everyone takes care of his own interests. The side of the faith is left unguarded, and the enemy is assaulting it from every ambush. O Muslims, the faith is in such a wretched state, but you are captured fully by the pursuit of the carrion of the worldly pleasures. After all, how long can this palatial world last, in your estimation? Or have you forgotten the passing away of those who were before you? O careless people, the time of death is near at hand. How long will you remain lost in revelry in the company of beautiful, refined women with moon-like faces? Do not make yourselves prisoners of the world, O men of wisdom, otherwise you will experience much bitterness at the time of your dying moments. Do not surrender your hearts but to that beloved, so that you may receive eternal bliss from the one who is most benevolent wise is he who loses his senses in the path, and weary is the one who is dazed with the beauty of his beloved face. To drink from the goblet of his love is like drinking elixir. Whoever drinks out of it will never, never die. O my brother, do not give your heart to this worldly life. In every drop of this honey there is deadly poison. Serve the cause of faith with all your might as best as you possibly can with life and wealth, so that from the Lord of the heavens you may receive the acclaim of approval time upon time. Display in your conduct the light of your faith. Having given your heart to Joseph, at least follow the same path that leads to the well Remember the days when this faith was a source of attraction for all, high and low alike. It emancipated a multitude of prisoners from the bondage of Satan the accursed. It had extended its benign shade over the entire world, and by virtue of its reverence and honor it seemed to step on the roof of the heavens. And now what an age has set in that every half-witted idiot dares to falsify this dignified faith out of sheer stupidity. Hundreds of thousands of fools have abandoned faith, and hundreds of thousands of fools have already fallen prey to the predators. All the calamity has befallen the Muslims merely because, with respect to faith, Their sense of loyalty and sacrifice is not keeping in step with their potentials. Even if a whole world renounces the religion of Muhammad Mustafa, blessings be upon him, their sense of honor does not motivate them to make a movement as feeble as the movement in the belly of the mother of an as-yet-unborn babe. All their worries are dedicated to the care for this world, And all their wealth goes down the drain for their women and children. They are seen at the center stage of all sinful revelries, and they are the very jewel of such gatherings which are dedicated to the defiance of God's will. They are so familiar with the places of wasteful pursuits, yet are alien to the path of guidance for the faith. They have nothing but hatred, they take pride in the company of those who worship wine. The beloved who earnestly earlier had nothing but love for them has at last turned his face away from them, because he did not find in the hearts of those the truth which is the mark of the truly dedicated. That age of wealth and majesty have left them forever. The curse of their evil deeds has brought times like these. All the greatness that came to them came through the path they pursued in the service to faith. Most certainly, if they ever achieved the same heights, they will achieve them again through the same path. The two concerns for the religion of Ahmad, which are eating up the very essence of my life, are the abundance of enemies and the scarcity of the helpers of faith. Consume, O Lord, and rain upon us the blessings of thy hell, or else take me away from this abode of raging fire. O Lord, bring forth from the east the light of guidance, and illuminate the eyes of the wayward people with illustrious signs. As you have blessed me with the truth in this raging state of misery and woe, I can never expect that you would cause me to die a fruitless death. The mission of the truthful never ends up in vain. Within their sleeves works the hand of God. To our critics. We have decided that objections, criticisms, doubts, and difficulties raised by men of different affiliations and different ways of thinking, they may relate to Islam, the Holy Koran, or our chief and patron, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, blessings upon him, or my own revelational claims, should be collected, arranged, and numbered and printed in book form. Then, seriatim, we should proceed to write our answers to them. Therefore, all concerned, whether Christians, Hindus, Aryans, Jews, Magian, atheists, Brahmas, scientists, philosophers, hostile Muslims, others, are invited to send their objections to us, clearly and legibly written. Objections should be well meant, spelt out to find the truth. The objections may relate to Islam, the Holy Koran, or our chief and leader, the best of messengers, or they may relate to my person, my divinely appointed station, my revelations, so that these objections collected together and numbered may be printed in book form, and that they may be answered in detail one by one. And may peace be upon all those who follow divine guidance. By a humble one, Mirza Khulam Ahmad of Kadian, district of Gurdaspur, Punjab, Number 10, Jamadul Sani, 1308 AH, after Hijra. Notice. This book is followed by two others, which with this book make one book. This book is called Fathe Islam, Victory of Islam. The second book is called Ta'uzeh e Maram, Objectives Explained, while the third one is named as Izala e Aucham, Removal of Doubts. Mirza Khulam Ahmad of Kadian.